1: Welcome to New Books in Political Science, my name is Heath Brown, and today I have the real pleasure to talk to the author of Philanthropy in America, a History, uh, Olivier Zones, how are you doing today?
0: I'm fine. I'm delighted to be with you.
1: It's a real pleasure to have read the book and to, to have this chance to, to talk with you. As as I mentioned, uh, this is a, an issue that's of particular interest to me, and so so I read this book very closely. I read all the books for the podcast very closely, but I read yours extra closely. Before we get to the book, maybe you can tell us just a little bit about yourself, where you are now, where you've been, and and what precedes this book.
0: Well, I have been uh, at the University of Virginia as a professor of history uh, for now 36 years, Uh, so I'm a long-time faculty member here. Um, I um, grew up in France, uh, got interested in American history in my early 20s, one thing led into another, and I ended up uh, spending most of my adult life on this side of the uh, of the pond, as the British would say. Now, um, uh, I I think of myself uh, basically as a historian of the United States. Um, I've written a number of books, mostly on the uh, late 19th and 20th century, The one that preceded my book on philanthropy was entitled uh, Why the American Century? And I ended the title with a question mark. So the book was an attempt to answer America's rise to uh, world power uh, and uh, to to give an explanation for it. And this is uh, in working on this book that I kind of stumbled on the topic of philanthropy. Um, That is mostly... uh, um, I came to this topic from the stand from a, from the history of science standpoint um, part of the argument that I made in my American century book and that I try to sustain uh, was that what made uh, America powerful in the world scene was not so much uh was only in part the Collapse of Europe in the First World War and the ways in which the various European countries were very good at killing one another, but also because uh, Americans created a new world of knowledge and science-based economy, um, and and part of this uh, creation involved the creation of the graduate school. And of um a, a scientific establishment, this is where I realized uh, all that philanthropy really was playing in this uh, 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 in, in, in this uh, major uh, transformation of the country you know there were uh, fewer than fifty graduate students in this country in eighteen seventy uh so here we are uh and and then uh and then I, I when thinking about this this issue, I realized there was a much broader topic behind it and and that got me to this book that you just read
1: yeah, so you write these um what I think could be described as big books on on big issues that cover large spans of time before we get to some of the big stuff. I wonder if you can start with just a definition, just sort of to sort of pull us all into the way you're thinking about the subject. How do you define or explain what the term philanthropy means today? Uh, what should it include? What do, what do we put into that, that, that word that people use? You know, to mean lots of different things, what do you mean when you use it? Well, uh, of course, uh,
0: this is um, there's no relationship here. Between the length of the questions and the length of the answer. Uh, <laughs> it's a simple question, it's a complicated answer. Uh, you know, it's a little bit the ways in which Tocqueville uses the word democracy, uh, it has many different meanings. Um, um, uh, on, on one level, here, uh, I'm thinking of it in a rather traditional way that is to say, philanthropy is an enterprise that is distinct from charity. Um, that is actually in part designed against the waste of the charitable establishment in the late 19th century, against giving things that we know. Investment in in the search for root causes. I think all of this is basically correct, uh, and that uh, that's. Uh, I also think of philanthropy. Uh, my my take on it basically would be, how can it be that a Capitalist society very much invested in profit making and thinking that uh, the common good comes out of profit making and competition actually generates a very large non profit sector uh, where uh, 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 many of the rules of the games are similar to that of the profit sector, of the for profit sector, except for profit itself. Uh, uh, which then gets invested in in causes much larger than any particular corporation or individual, uh, and so I think of philanthropy as the name for all of the organizations that contribute to that.
1: Yeah, uh, you describe yeah you know, this is a history, and you describe the origins of philanthropy in America in some ways as a pact between the very rich and reformers. Um, so, around what did these two groups come together? Um, what formed the basis of the common cause formed in the 1800s between these, these, um, uh, those pushing for a variety of types of reforms of society and, and the very rich, the industrialists of the era? Well,
0: I want, if I may, to before I, to, before I answer this question, uh, I want to say that um, I think of philanthropy and I, my book, and I deal with it in my book as as a field that that engages people from many different levels of wealth. Um, and I say this because it's almost impossible really to understand what I'm trying to say about philanthropy if you think only about big money philanthropy and the big industrialists and the big fortunes, uh, even though they're obviously a very big part of the story. I also think that pretty much what's made philanthropy, uh, 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 what well, has made it possible to be a very large contribution to the democratic project is is a very broad investment from people from many different walks of life. And and I think that's a key point. And, and I'm sure you're going to return to that at some point. But, but, the, uh, uh, but to answer your question, the way I view it was that, well, there are a number of reformers... Um, uh, social workers, uh, professors, uh, people, in, uh, 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 Protestant ministers or ministers from other, you know, religion, religious affiliations, um, Catholic missions or Jewish charities, uh, all could, and a number of them did, uh, resent the rise of large fortunes. Uh, certainly, uh, you find most traces of that in the literature on the Gilded Age, uh, with the rise of the robber barons uh, uh, with the controversies of a tainted money um, or all of these uh, all of these things and i uh, which um, are basically um, true, uh, that is to say uh, some of the very wealthy, many of them were engaged in in uh, practices that were thought perhaps not at the time to be illegal but only became illegal at one point or another, uh, and therefore uh, you have a reaction to this among in, in reformist groups. certainly, uh, early in the 1920s, the uh, University of Wisconsin would not accept any foundation money the Regions of the university would quickly resend that, actually, um, but but you you can see this uh, 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 very well. On the other hand, I think that uh, um, the size of the resources that uh, New Fortune's uh, allocated to uh, philanthropic activities. Um, and uh, the goals that they set for themselves, and the advisors they recruited, uh, far outstrip uh, the significance um, uh, the um, the tainted money issue. I mean, in other words, it seems to me that uh, in an era where basically uh, there was no government fund for any of the large scientific ventures uh, that philanthropy invested in, uh, these resources were absolutely critical. And uh, moreover, uh, as being somebody who has, before writing my American Century book, wrote a book on on corporate America, making America corporate, and had a chance to Go through the archives of many very wealthy corporate builders, uh, I could certainly see that at some point in people's lives, especially very wealthy people's lives, when they've made a pile of money, very quickly the gold becomes something else. I think uh, Bill Gates is a good example of that, actually, as we think of it now. And so, therefore, always reducing this, uh, never giving people the ability to move beyond, uh, and if you're going to, to, to give people if you're going to authorize, permit people in the society to make money, you have also to permit them to spend money. And 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 I think this alliance between reformers looking for resources, uh, where the resources were, and, and the owner of these resources more than willing, dedicated to actually uh, doing something important with them, uh, was a historic uh, uh, meeting between... Uh, Perhaps uh, strange bedfellows, but bedfellows that together uh, change the ways in which we do business.
1: Yeah, and, and we're going to sort of jump around in the history a little bit and certainly go much faster than the book, uh, book does. But we sort of understand philanthropy in this way, beginning primarily in the Northeast, some other places, but, but at least for some of the early portions of the book, that's where we see it. But then there's this spread to the South. Were the same social issues on the philanthropic agenda for southern states as they, they were for uh, northern cities, northeastern cities mainly? And and were the philanthropists welcomed in the south in the same way that they were welcomed perhaps in, in New York City and Chicago and, and Boston and elsewhere? Talk about that move southward.
0: This is, again, a, a, a historically... A, a, it's a very important question because uh, you know by the time the federal troops left the South after the end of Reconstruction, um, and uh, Rutherford Hayes went to the White House and Samuel Tilden didn't, um, uh, and and Reconstruction collapsed uh, in, into Redemption. Um, uh, really, the major forces of change in the South were the philanthropists, um, and remained the philanthropists pretty much uh, uh, against the seg- uh, local g- government, you know, and forced segregation um, until uh, uh, well into the 20th century. And uh, I think, for example, of the significance of the Rosenwald Fund. Um, now, Julius Rosenwald was one of the was the key builders of Sears Uh He was a, he was Jewish. Uh, he, he had known uh, discrimination as as a Jew, uh, even though he was very wealthy. He, there was some hotels and resorts he couldn't go to, and so on and so forth. He he embraced. Um, uh Booker T. Washington, someone I feel should be rehabilitated in history uh, because he was extremely courageous uh, and dealing with extreme violence. Uh, and i don't I think that anybody who became anybody in the civil rights movement was educated first in the Rosenwald School in the south uh, and uh, uh, and and one of the things that really amazes me is how silent the history of the civil rights movements are on this
1: and and which schools were these we're, we're talking about um uh, the the plan to, to build schools in, in nearly every county yeah um it, what's the extent of this well i think uh,
0: uh I think rosenwald built about five thousand uh, plus or minus a few dozens uh uh rosenwald schools in various uh, southern counties they were elementary schools um, and uh but they were absolutely essential and in in two ways. First, because um, uh, uh, the program always required a kind of cost sharing on the, from, from the, from the, from the, from the African American communities involved, um, and therefore uh, the 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 the, the it, it was the African American communities themselves who would go to the Wild schools and to, to the World and world Fund and asked for support uh, support came uh, uh, often in, in the in the form of uh, uh, supplies uh, building supplies actually most of it coming from Sears. Uh, the communities um, uh, much of the of the uh, support came in the form of labor as African American communities had masons and carpenters and many steel. Uh, trades were well represented in them. Uh, The combination of these two things uh, uh, created a major change in the ways in which uh, people excluded uh, from education uh, managed to get some.
1: And and this this last point, I think, really does um, take us back to one of the first points you made, which was that philanthropy grows from that of of really something of a privileged few to a mass movement. Um, and, and some of it was, was because of these kinds of cost-sharing and, and institutions that were built to, that invited um, uh, philanthropy and, and donations from from the middle class, largely. So what facilitated this growth? What facilitated the the, the movement from something uh, that we, we maybe um, wrongly associate just with the very wealthy to something that became very enmeshed in, in uh, what it meant to be in America?
0: Well, I, I think... Uh, um uh there are uh, several um, uh, aspects here that converge uh first uh, i think that, that i mean I, there was certainly uh for a long and sustained period of time uh, a a significant rise in disposable income in uh, uh among ordinary americans um, uh it's hard to conceive of it this way as we are experiencing a, an unusual level of inequality. Um but but I think we, we can certainly uh I always love to return to uh this uh, uh essay by a German economist nineteen oh six Bernard Sombart, why is there no socialism in the United States? And his answer was that because people were paid too well, you know, that class consciousness uh uh, was wrecked on the, on the shores of roast beef and apple pie. Well, wh- whether this was uh, true or not, um, uh, yes, it was in part true, not that there was not a violent and important labor movement in this country, there was one. Uh, but by and large, there was also a significant surplus. Uh, of income among modest families and very early in the 20th century in family budgets uh, collected by the Bureau of Labor Statistics you find uh, money set aside every month for the Red Cross not much but a few bucks um, and, uh, and, and 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 then um, uh, I think mass philanthropy got a major boost during the uh, First World War uh, as uh, As opposed to the current ways of war, where we have our children and grandchildren pay the bill, those bills were paid uh, at the time. And uh, there was a massive fundraising effort during the First World War led by um, a a consortium uh, of uh, a partnership. Between the administration and major people coming from business and philanthropies, um, and uh, 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 the key therefore became in part to sustain this fundraising effort uh, after uh, uh, after the war. But uh, uh, this fundraising effort, this massive fundraising effort, was also the outcome early in the twentieth century of the public health movement. Um, uh, the fight against uh, tuberculosis, uh, the fights against other uh, diseases. Uh, I always say, uh, I say in my book, and it's very significant, that uh, the American Tuberculosis Society was uh, created uh, the same year as the Rockefeller Foundation. And actually, Jacob Rees, a major reformer, said, well, we're creating this because no major philanthropist is helping us, so we're going to do it ourselves. Um, and so, nickel and dime philanthropy uh, uh, began uh, pretty much at the same time as sort of the creation of big foundations in this country, and it remains sustained through the federation movement, uh, the Rise of Community Trust it became United Way, and and of course, um, uh, all of these funds are administered in the market. They are part of the capitalist. Uh, management of uh, money, uh, uh, but they are, uh, of course, uh, in the uh, part of this non-profit sector. They've been
1: okay, so a name that is likely familiar to many students of American history is also a part of your story. I wonder if you could explain to us how Margaret Sanger's work got caught up in the regulation of philanthropy and nonprofit organizations. This is a, a, a different aspect. Sort of much of the story up to this point been a very nice story, but then things get a little bit more complicated. How did Margaret Sanger become a part of your story? Huh. Uh, that's um, actually, uh, I'm glad you asked
0: me this question because I think it's one of the more interesting uh, biographical parts of my book here. Uh, uh, clearly, um, there are... Uh, uh, A number, uh, well, four or five different ways. I'm going to go fast on each one of them. Okay. Okay. Um, The first one, of course, is that um, Margaret Sanger was uh, completely 100% dedicated to her cause, and it was a difficult cause because uh, because um, uh, uh, distributing information on birth control. Uh, early in the 20th century, was considered pornographic uh, by law. Uh, So uh, uh, medical journals couldn't even publish articles on birth control because they would lose their uh, mailing permits. Um, And uh, 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 Margaret Sanger uh, uh, was uh, arrested and jailed. Sometimes she generated those arrests herself for publicity purposes, Uh, but the long and the short of it is that uh, she was fighting a good cause, uh, but she was breaking the law, Uh, which is actually why I think I make a big point in my book all along that uh, this notion that uh, philanthropy must be apolitical is, is absurd. I mean, it's just complete fantasy because you cannot work for the common good if you don't realize that there are many bad laws out there. So sometimes you have to break the law to be a good philanthropist. Now, Margaret Sanger had uh, uh, problems of raising money, uh, especially as people didn't want to give, her mo- give money to a cause that they knew was illegal. Um, uh, she uh, uh, um, was not uh, afraid. I mean, she, she I think, partly addressed her uh, appeal, uh, to the cause of birth control by appealing to eugenics, uh by uh, promising uh, not only uh, wanted babies but better babies. Now remember that uh, you know, eugenics in the progressive era uh, was still considered a progressive science. Um, it was not uh, uh, discarded as uh, the source of... Uh, Racism and atrocities that it has become later, uh, or the source of of uh, uh, abuses uh, in the field of medicine, um, and 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 uh, so um, I think we have to uh, uh, avoid anachronistic judgments here. Uh, but Margaret Sanger certainly made an overture uh, to eugenists as uh, major. Uh, um, Uh, very wealthy uh, Americans were funding the Eugenic Society, and and therefore uh, she was hoping and she was successful in attracting some of that money. Um, The uh, other uh, aspect of uh, the reason why Margaret Sanger comes into my story is because um, uh, she uh, also uh, raised money quite effectively uh, by uh, marrying in a second marriage uh, a a wealthy industrialist uh, who um, was very much in love with her and uh, devoted their fortune to her cause, uh, but at his own peril because he was um, became the target of. Uh, uh, investigation by the IRS and uh, lost his various appeals to, uh, uh, um, uh, and therefore uh, lost his fortune. And in the end, uh, uh, Mr. Slee, as his name was, was no longer uh, uh, of great help to uh, Margaret, who I think had married him basically for the purpose of, of uh, tapping into his uh, fortune. Third, uh, so uh, as uh, Margaret was losing this uh, uh, source of fund, she very successfully uh, tapped into uh, mass philanthropy by uh, raising a small amounts of money from women all across the country, therefore made an effective link, which I try to make in my book, between big money philanthropy, which she was after to begin with, and then uh, uh, mass philanthropy f- following that. So I think she's a very important figure uh, for my book in the sense that she she she, she demonstrates how uh, an important uh, movement needed, uh, and of course Margaret Sanger uh, won uh, because uh, um, uh, birth control education uh, uh, became legal uh, first under medical supervision and then fully uh, and. Uh, uh, so she won her case, and she successfully uh, created uh, the organization that today is Planned Parenthood was the Birth Control League when she was running it. So I, I made a connection here between big money philanthropy, mass philanthropy, uh, and a major uh, social movement as well as a health
1: issue. Yes. Yeah. Um, in the interest of time, maybe we can move forward a little bit. I'm on t- um, at your disposal. Yeah, it's um, because there's just so much to talk about today. And I think putting the work of, of the Gates Foundation, for instance, into the context of Carnegie and Ford 100 years ago is important to do. So how would you compare uh, the work of, of um, uh, the Gates Foundation today to the, the work and mission and, and view of the world of uh, Carnegie and Ford and the philanthropists? Of a of hundred years ago. What do they share in common and, and maybe what, what can we look to, to that, that separates them? Yeah, okay.
0: Uh, I have been somewhat criticized, by the way, for being too lenient with the Gates Foundation uh, in my book. Um, uh, and I think um, uh, I, uh, I came to, uh, I don't know a whole lot about their um, educational program, which is a big chunk of the foundation. But I've studied in, in great detail uh, the, the program that they conducted in India for uh, fighting AIDS. And, um, uh, and it, it seems to me, as I was reading quite extensively through the sources at my disposal on this program, that um, um, uh, it was a very significant help Uh, to the Indian people and the world Uh, and it was a very genuine commitment on the part of uh, the Gates Foundation to uh, uh, resolve this issue and I was impressed by uh, the level of uh, commitment that I saw at the very top level of the foundation including that of Bill Bill and Melinda in uh, this uh, program including the two of them I think uh, visiting uh, uh, um, Uh, visiting uh, uh, sex workers in India. And, and of course, we can always, it's very easy to be cynical, and we can always say that this was all posturing on the part of wealthy, uh, extremely wealthy, uh, wealthiest Americans. Um, But uh, from what I saw, I I understood some uh, uh, genuine feeling there, and that touched me. Uh, So that may explain why I was uh, uh, perhaps uh, not critical enough of their work. The point is... um, Uh, I think there's a direct line connecting uh, uh, Carnegie to Gates, in the sense that um, uh, uh, there is a similar uh, feeling uh, or understanding, a century apart, that uh, huge fortunes do not necessarily belong to the people who make them, but they belong to society at large. Uh, I think that feeling is shared uh, across times. Uh, and certainly connects Carnegie to Gates. Uh, I think what differentiates them greatly is that I don't think Bill Gates is a social Darwinist, while Carnegie was 100% social Darwinist.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, so that's in a nutshell my answer.
1: Yeah, no, and and I think that um, one of the reasons why this is an important book to, to be read, not just by historians, but also by uh, political scientists and sociologists and, and others, is because of uh, how important philanthropy is in the world that we live in today, or perhaps as important as as a hundred years ago, but certainly in in some um, some different ways. I really enjoyed the book. I, I learned a lot from it. Um, well, thank you. Uh, so thank you. I, I really did appreciate uh, Olivia Zun's book. Um, now out in paperback is uh, from Princeton University Press. is called Philanthropy in America: History. Uh, there's a new preface uh, that that uh, is, uh, leads the book. Uh, Olivia, thank you very much for your time today.
0: Well, you're most welcome. You're most welcome. Thank you for thinking of me.